Technocast. We all hope you had a lovely Easter and thank you for joining us once again as we enter May and a bit of spring. It's a busy couple of months coming up, especially with the June Congress, so I'll be giving a few extra details about how you can get involved at the end of the episode. So please stick around once our wonderful guest has finished rounding off the theme of surrealism. And this episode, we're going to hear about a, a very unique piece from the surrealists involving nature. So it's a delight to introduce Christina Heflin, who completed a PhD at Royal Holloway and is currently a lecturer at Parsons Paris. And she's going to be taking us through a presentation titled The Authenticities of the Ceremonial Hat for Eating Booty Base. And anyone who's watched Good Omens will know how many takes it took me to say that. Now, before we start, I would recommend having a quick Google of the ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse and checking out some of the images. So you have a bit of a visual context for what Christina is going to talk to us about. Okay, over to Christina. Relax, enjoy, and I'll see you in a moment. Today, I'm here to discuss the different lives of the ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse, created by English surrealist artist, Eileen Agar, and currently in the Victoria and Albert Museum's permanent collection. At the beginning of my research on Agar, I thought that she had made multiple versions of a hat covered in myriad sea creatures. She was known to do this at times, making multiples of objects, as with works like Angel of Anarchy and Wings of Augury. But we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about a hat and the creatures which adorned it. Considering Agar's propensity to create multiple works with the same name, I initially saw these hats as a kind of millenarial series of wearable sea creatures. There is limited art historical scholarship on Agar, and I have seen no mention of any discrepancies concerning the ceremonial hat. One early hypothesis was that there is a series of hats in play, maybe one taller, one wider, one with the lobster, one without, etc. While the descriptions from various sources differed, I began to suspect this misalignment was not because of multiple hats, but rather because of a continuous process of creation from the mid-1930s until the end of Agar's life in 1991, that it itself was evolving over time. Giving it a second look through this lens, I quickly realized that they were one and the same. The hat from pictures dating to 1938, 1948, 1991, and 1995 were all the same work of art, the ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse. Publications from the V&A, Agar's 1988 autobiography, as well as other sources feature the hat in several different ways. And while we can examine the different permutations of the hat, it is only possible to make these claims based on past photographs and descriptions in comparison with the object's current state, as is described in the V&A's documentation. Its ornamentation may have just altered over time due to accident, time, and or simple desire to modify the piece. This would then explain the differences in appearance of the hat over the years. Agar described the hat as possessing a cork basket base, which was then inverted, painted blue, and covered, quote, with fishnet, a lobster's tail, a starfish, and other marine objects, end quote. However, according to the 1995 conservation report from the VNA, the hat is, quote, constructed on a cork bark base painted in blue and yellow and decorated with a large orange colored plastic flower, a blue plastic star, assorted shells, 
two varieties of coral painted and green and pink, two starfish, twists of paper, a large glass bead, a piece of jigsaw puzzle, a piece of bark from a plane tree, and a large fish bone, end quote. When I was kindly permitted to see the hat in person, I was happy to see that this was still the case. Considering Agar's 1988 description and the VNAs from 1995, these two incongruous accounts speak to the difference between the initial and the final versions of the hat. Though in between, there are differences still. In addition to the written descriptions, we also have dated pictures that allow for us to see the object's evolution over time. In an image of the hat soon after it was first made, it had considerable verticality, though it is difficult to determine what give it, gives it its height due to photographic overexposure blurring the details. Perhaps a dried sea sponge or other tubular-shaped sea creature allows for such gravity-defying height, though it is hard to say with any certainty. The image of the hat from 1948 is clearer, and the details are more readily identifiable. This version features the addition of a militaristic chin strap composed of fishnet and is topped with feathers, seashells, and a carved basket holding a wooden fish and lobster. It is indeed the same hat base due to its distinct form. Additionally, the conservation report states that the hat's provenance is traced directly from Agar to her niece, Jenny Fraser, who inherited it after Agar's death in 1991. The museum received the work two years later, and it is likely that the proposed donation occurred soon after Agar's passing, thus allowing minimal time between the safety of the artist's studio and that of the V&A's reserves. In the conservation report, there is, quote, evidence of adhesive deposits at several places on the hat, suggesting that other elements may have been present at some time, and that possibly alterations had been made to the original configuration of the decorative elements, end quote. These glue deposits point to those past items having adorned the hat in various places, which explains the evolution of the sculptural hat. In 1948, Agar appeared multiple times on television, as well as on a newsreel, and at least twice that year with her hat. Once in October on a program hosted by fashion historian and keeper at the VNA, James Laver, where she attempted to create a new hat live on air, but resorted to featuring the ceremonial hat instead due to difficulties with the materials. There are images of her from the occasion of this television appearance. The second instance was for a program for British Pathé, new pictorials that aired in December 1948, in which Agar is seen walking down the street in her famous hat, catching eyes and turning heads. The narrator describes the hat as, quote, 18 inches high and 18 inches wide, with lobster, tigerfish, a prawn, seashells, marine flowers, and a starfish. The hat also features tall feathers, a speckled egg, artificial foliage, as well as a dart inserted into the end of a seashell. The pictures from October show that same shell, but there is no dart, meaning that, there, that it was added sometime between October and December 1948. So we're pinpointing a modification down to just a span of a few weeks. Next, the hat is seen for the first time in color in a photograph from 1991, which embodies the same spirit as the previous iterations of the ceremonial hat. We finally get to see its vibrance, though nevertheless different with its plane having shifted from the vertical to the horizontal. It can be interpreted that the artist had become less daring and risk-taking when this version was conceived, that as she progressed in her career, she felt less of a need to try and stand out as she was a confirmed and established artist. 
or perhaps it was simply the limitations of her materials and a decision to stop fighting gravity. Determining her motivation at this time when faced with a time gap of 43 years makes for a difficult exercise. We last saw the hat in 1948 where it looked completely different. The feathers, the chin strap, the lobster and fish in the basket, the speckled eggs, the shell with the dart, they're all gone. Given Agar's character and her methods, it would seem as though she purposely decided to completely overhaul the hat. Agar did not add to and replace this version of the hat piecemeal, but rather overhauled everything at once. In the V&A's catalog, this final version looks similar to the image from 1991, but with slight changes, such as a piece of plain tree bark and a fishbone, which have been added as the return of the vertical element. Additionally, the conservation treatment was an opportunity for the V&A to collaborate with colleagues from the Natural History Museum in order to identify, identify the flora and fauna on the hat. They were unable to identify everything, but it would appear that many of the species that had been found on the hat came from the Mediterranean coastline. This includes the edible mussel, Neptune's whelk, smooth callista, the common serith, the carpet shell, red starfish, a brittle star, and the fishbone was from the common sole. Not unlike the artist, the hat has had a rather peculiar life of its own, shedding some aspects and taking on new personae with this passage of time. Agar described it as, quote, a sort of archambogo headgear for the fashion conscious and how it received a lot of rather startled publicity. End quote. The hat has inherently remained itself, though, maintaining what Benjamin called its aura, with only orbiting details coming and going as nature pleased or as it pleased the artist. Agar took great care to always preserve this essence using the same categories of objects, shells, sea creatures, foliage, and other natural odds and ends. Based on my research, I can state with confidence that the artist never physically reproduced the hat in any way that there would ever have been a possibility of putting two of them side by side. Without using the surrealist technique of automatism, she let nature take its course and never forced any of her work to go in a certain direction. Even though the hat was never reproduced, the consideration of the ensemble of the iterations could be likened to an accelerated evolutionary process. Ayer could have renamed the object with each change, she could have repurposed the cork base for another hat. Instead, she chose to add new details and the object retaining its identity remained the ceremonial hat for eating bouillet base. In an era where the means of mass production was becoming more and more developed and with Agar's past experience making works with the same name, the idea of making multiple hats would not have been unheard of. Instead, Agar chose in this case to preserve the authority of the original. Benjamin attributes the original object as both unique and permanent, so it is useful to consider the hat's permanence. He says, quote, the authenticity of a thing is the essence of all that is transmissible from its beginning, ranging from its substantive duration to its testimony to the history which it has experienced, end quote. What is transmissible in this hat is its aesthetic, its purpose as a ritual and art object, and the artist's intention that the hat remain authentic regardless of modifications. It was her socialite mother who was inspiration behind this creation. 
though the stylish Victorian woman would have never encouraged such an ostentatious creation. As Agar fondly recalls of her mother, quote, her hats were myriad. In fact, she would not dream of going to stay at the seaside without some 40 hats. And what hats? Enormous constructions of straw, velvet, or fur, like frigates under the sail or birds on the wing, embellished with vast bows, ribbons, or ostrich feathers, end quote. In a way, Agar took her mother's hats and added her own playful twist to them. Her ceremonial hat was a, a way to make this kind of fashion her own and to also gently parody the high society women who sported them. From its creation until Agar's death, the ceremonial hat was both an ephemeral and permanent object. The artist showed no particular sentiment nor attachment to any of the hat's multiple existences. Agar freely admitted that some of her works were not meant for posterity, claiming that, quote, the surrealists made objects out of whatever turned up, believing that they came at the behest of chance and went that way also. Objects were ephemeral, sometimes even made in order to be destroyed. A lot of objects I've made in the course of my life have disappeared like that, she said. Agar's ability to truly let nature take its course shows a remarkable detachment. This trust in the process allows her to focus fully on creating, showing a need to produce, and to let the ro rotating cast of sea creatures use her as a medium. In conclusion, the one and only ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse was just one of many works by Agar featuring sea creatures. Her predilection for and dedication to using marine animals in her works reflects a wider theme in surrealism of questioning the hierarchy of the senses, challenging Western subjectivity, as well as opposing anthropocentrism by elevating these creatures to higher consideration. Furthermore, Agar's frequent visits to natural history museums and her collection of human anatomy glass slides points to an active engagement with popular science. It also suggests that alongside the themes of metaphysics and psychoanalysis, there is heretofore an under-examined area of surrealism where the interest in material science is represented in work by artists like Eileen Agar, as well as Robert Desnos, Man Ray, Jean Penlevé, and others. Agar's unique sculptural headgear is a humorous ode to the sea and a work of art that embodies the essence of both Agar's career as well as her place within surrealism as a whole. Thank you. A magical piece it is as well. And thank you to Christina for that lovely recording. And Christina is now going to take us on a journey through 1930s Britain to the Mediterranean coast and of course, a bit of glue. Hello, Christina. Hello, Felix. Nice to see you. Well, thank you for your lovely piece. I hadn't heard of this piece, and so it was very exciting because it's, well, very unique, as you said, right? And I wanted first to ask you if you could just tell us a bit more about the context of it, about the kind of artist that Agar was and, and also why you why you like the piece or why you chose the piece. Well, it was really from the standpoint of Agar's archives, which are located at the Tate 
she actually chose to bequeath them before her death. So uh, she worked with the curators there uh, and, and left a lot of writings, a lot of um, objects as well. So the archives also hold um, small sculptures as well as a, a dinner menu that she made to send off some artists before they um, escaped to, to America right before the Second World War. So within these archives, I was seeing uh, photographs of this hat. I had seen quite a few references to it in different images at different moments. And it kind of became this, <laughs> this quest for me to get to the bottom of it because the hat wasn't within the Tate's holdings. It was held by the V&A. And so why was this hat there? What was its purpose? And like I mentioned, uh, is there more than one? Because it was very odd. Some of the photographs that I saw, and, and you see from the, the images that I, I provided for the, the episode, it looks pretty round, you know, kind of circular at its base. But I would see images where it looked kind of thin and, and, um, and narrow. And so there was a real curiosity uh, about it that, you know, there was just this mystery hanging around it. And the more I looked into it, the, the more interesting it got, uh, seeing all of these different angles, seeing all the different objects that adorned it really did push me to keep looking to get to the bottom of it. And uh, between that conservation report from the, the mid 90s from the VNA and also being able to see it myself in person really helped me to, to better understand it. And gosh, seeing it in person really just made it even more fulfilling. Uh, it, it's a beautiful, very large work that is oblong, which explains why it appeared at some angles narrow and, and some like a circle. And yeah, it just it fits with this overarching theme that I had for the thesis where I looked at surrealism and sea creatures and tying in a marine biological aspect and the general concept of biology, we can't help but think of evolution. And so I was easily able to relate the concept of you know, Darwinian evolution <laughs> with, with this hat where, you know, what's going to survive? It's the survival of the fittest. <laughs> and so we kind of see that uh, with the, the end result of this hat. Yeah, there's so many, so many different strands come from that that evolution thought right but first did you ever find out why it's in the vna and not with the tate the only thing that you know kind of comes to mind would be you know the, uh, it was her niece jenny fraser who inherited some things from her aunt and what i can just come to is that you know maybe she had some kind of connection Maybe she didn't want there to be a monopoly of just one institution, one gallery holding all of Agar's work. If the Tate has this, perhaps it was best that the, the V&A have something, or maybe, and, and this is something to look into, it's at a place called the, the Cloth Workers Center. And it's a specific place for garments, textiles, um, and this being a wearable sculpture, a hat, there may have been more trust in a specialized in institution that could take care of this piece that is you know, fashion as well. 
that's where I would place it, but I'm not sure with the history of the VNA at what point the, the cost of the center uh, came to be. So that's something to look into. Mm, very interesting, yeah, because it's a very it's a very specialized piece, which you know you therefore have to deal with it in a very particular way. It's so interesting to hear about a piece of art that changes over time like that. I I was reminded of there's a there's a song that Billy Bragg does where he updates the lyrics every so often. But other than that, I'd not I hadn't come into contact with anything that, you know, changed over time. And um I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about either the significance or that or why that might be interesting, especially within the, the, the perspective that science was related. Well, first of all, I'd love that reference for the Billy Bragg song. That's a that's really interesting. But what it made me your question made me think of uh, right away is before I started the PhD, I was working in art authentication and I was looking at mostly paintings and doing condition reports on paintings. And with the use of UV light, that black light, uh, you can see where artists retouch works. And so I don't know if Agar's technique is that rare, but I think it's just more visible because of the changes. Uh, so when you would look at these paintings with the black light, you would see the retouching. That's that's exactly what I was looking for, was this giveaway of different layers of paint that had dried at different times. And with this black light, that made it very obvious. And you would hear about artists such as Degas who would obsessively retouch their paintings. There were some artists who would ask for their works back from whoever they had sold them to uh, so that they could rework them. <laughs> so I think there is this um, ongoing process for many artists who uh, perhaps don't want to let go. And because Agar never let this piece of work out of her possession, uh, she had it you know, until until she died. I think that it, it kind of, whenever she would perhaps look over after a bit of beachcombing on a holiday, she could come back and, and play around with it and see how she could make it either better or more in line with her own kind of where she was as an artist at that time. So it may, I think it evolved in parallel with her own life as an artist. Yeah, that's so interesting. Did did she have other pieces that she didn't sell or, or give away? There are quite a few, yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Just judging from the works that appear in her home during photo shoots because she kind of had a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the that first surrealist exhibition in London which happened in 1936 and so the 50th anniversary brought in this renaissance of, of British surrealism where she was invited to speak at uh, different places there were commemorative uh, exhibitions and during this time, she would have these photo shoots done in, in her home. And you can see in the background works, paintings that are in various collections in both public and private institutions. I recently went to Leeds and had the chance to see some of the, the works that I either hadn't seen in person or uh, hadn't seen in quite some time. And it was interesting to see the mix of, of 
works that came from you know just you know anonymous private collections and these institutions and sometimes there, there would be an indication of when they were acquired and that kind of gives a, a, a timeline but it seems like she had quite a few works that, that that were in her home up until around the time of her passing of course it's speculation but what do you think that maybe tells us about her as an artist or, or a person if it's that, that she always wanted to change things or maybe that it was to do with yeah protecting them or i i was listening to to a podcast recently about an artist uh, from the, the series of great women artists which is fantastic i highly recommend it and they were talking about a different artist who never sold a single work uh, she kept everything and then had a plan for it to go to museums after her death. So she would exhibit, but she did not part with a single work, uh, which I I find to be quite exceptional, whereas uh, Agar had been really open to selling. She never spoke as to why, that, that I've found so far, as to why she held on to some works. Of course, some of the works that were from, you know, later in her life, maybe she, uh, didn't get around to getting rid of them. But for example, this hat, it was made in the mid to late 30s. <laughs> it, it stayed with her. Whereas a lot of the works that we see um, in the background of those photographs that I mentioned, uh, they seem to be from later creations, later periods uh, in her in her work uh, as an artist. But yeah, I, I really don't know what drove her, if it was in a special attachment or if this was even a hat that she made for herself, you know, that and, and that's just kind of occurring to me. Maybe that this was something that she made, you know, kind of the way we knit a scarf to wear for ourselves. Yeah, definitely the way you describe that wonderful image of her being at the beach and picking something up and thinking, oh, this would be great for my hat, kind of implies something more than a piece of art, you know, a, a project or a something that you, is just part of your life, so to speak. And that's a really nice thought. But I was also interested in, you know, you were saying it always changes. And then you also had the quote in your recording about the permanence of it. So you have this contrast between something that is that is permanent. It's a piece of art. It exists. And there's records of it. But also it changes. And like you said, things uh, decay on it. And that's a very interesting contrast. Could you elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, I'm going to try to. So, but I think I think that there's like a uh, an essential core to the hat, uh, and I think that surrounds its base. Uh, but even there were elements of the base itself that uh, that kind of change the paint on it, for example, the chin strap. Um, but already we're getting into the the details of it. But the name never changed. Anytime I saw the work, it was always with this name, ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse. And I think that adds to its permanence as well as, as the, the base itself not changing, but just the the elements added to it uh, changing. And so that, that really does allow it to, to hold these two contrasting aspects where it is the same. I, I think the first uh, photograph dates to about 1937 up until uh, her death in 1991, it's still the ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse, but we see it take so many different aspects. It's this living object. 
that takes on so much. And it, so it is impermanent and permanent, evolving. And I think that's why it kind of speaks to that evolution because you know, when, when an animal evolves, you know, up until a certain point, you know, it, it does retain its name. It's almost sad to me that, you know, the hat will continue to exist, but won't continue to evolve in the same way. Has anybody ever mooted continuing to change it? Or is it now, you know, in, in stasis? Well, it, it's actually, in a way, it's not in stasis because it's not able to be displayed because it's too fragile. So it, it actually has continued to evolve in a way or de devolve maybe even at where, yeah, the, the cloth worker center uh, is, is very protective of it and really um, ha has informed me. And I, and I spoke with the, the head curator for the, the recent Whitechapel gallery exhibition on agar where they're, they're really insisting that the hat is just too fragile to, to move, uh, that it's just, it, it might even, you know, become worse. Unless there's some kind of intervention, it might, you know, continue. And uh, the thing is with the, with the conservation of a lot of these works, you know, we don't know what kind of glue it is. Uh, is that glue of archival quality? Is it stable? Is it going to degrade? And so it's, it, it was really special that I got to see it. And I hope that they're able to, to prioritize maybe with the recent exhibition. Also the Venice Biennale that just started that's focused on women and surrealism featuring works by Agar. Maybe this popularity will bump works by Agar up to the top of the priority list for conservation so that we're able to see this hat outside of, I only saw it in, in the reserves and Oh, it's it's just a splendid work. It's, it's absolutely magnificent. What impressions did you get from seeing it? Obviously, you'd seen photos before, but yeah, how was that experience? All of the different elements, all of the detail, all of the 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 personality, all of these little these Agar is continuing to wink at us in her work. And um, she's really she had a sense of humor. She she was playful and you know even though she was a serious artist she had this lightness this levity uh, to a lot of her works and it's things like this little piece of coral uh, that almost looks like an octopus tentacle it's kind of reaching up over this other element kind of grabbing it um, there, there are all these, you, if you just peek in, you can see that she's got all of these little details just hidden. And, and I think I spent, you know, two and a half hours with it, just looking and discovering and finding all of these little magical elements that, um, I, I was really sad to leave it, but it was, it was during a heat wave. <laughs> it was very hot. <laughs> but, um, no, it's such a lovely work. And I think it, it's really one of these things that, uh, also speaks to the interesting life that she had, wherein um, I mentioned the beachcombing. She she has accounts of, of having done beachcombing with Picasso in the in the 30s when they all went to the south of France with uh, Lee Miller and Roland Penrose and A.D. Fidelin and Man Ray, and it's the elements that she collects. Also, while she had a uh, a relationship with. 
about Paul Nash, they would go beachcombing as well. And so they were kind of mutually inspirational to each other and, and their love for the sea. And all of the things that she collects and the muses of her work uh, really just speak to these, these bigger pictures and, and her significance within uh, the history of art. You mentioned in your piece about uh, that they were from the Mediterranean, uh, a lot of these pieces and other aspects. And also that I found fascinating that they couldn't identify some of them. There's something quite magical about the fact they don't know what everything was. Um, But could you say a bit more about the significance of the sea for Agar and then how the science element um, plays into the art? Sure. So her her attachment to the sea is, and, and, and nature in general, but I really think it's the, the, the ocean that, that really speaks to her work. And it might even be traced to her, her long voyages. So she was born in Argentina uh, to a British American expatriate family living there, but she would make uh, quite often these uh, trips uh, to England to, to, to remain connected, her family still to Britain. So from, from a very young age, she, she became accustomed to these steamships uh, that would go across the sea. And there was also a lot of holidays that she would take, you know, coming from uh, a very uh, wealthy family, you know, tri- trips to the sea, visits also all over Europe. Uh, allowed her to to discover these different elements and I think it's just it's a it was a part of her this love for for the ocean and regarding her relationship to science it's actually quite interesting and this is also something that ties in quite nicely to her archives where she has these writings that she's uh, done these little scribbles these little notes these short little um, essays that are there uh, that talk about mitochondria as a mother. Um, She talks about uh, these different parts of the brain. So she talks about the corpus callosum, which is the element that unites the right and left brain. She's got these really neat educational anatomical slides in her archives, these glass plate slides um, that were from the late 19th century originally. And she, has I think about I'd say about fifteen in, in uh, there are also slides for botany and, and different uh, other scientific elements but I really focused on these anatomical slides and one of them she even does a collage with so she adds to it it's it's the the structure of uh, a human jaw like the bone and she adds um, kind of paper uh, leaf, kind of leaf shaped elements that uh, that are really typical uh, of her work and, and you can see kind of her hand interfering with this uh, these colored anatomical slides so it's really lovely and then there's another one where she uses a botanical slide the the exact reproduction in a painting so we, we can see looking at from her archives and then looking at the painting it, it's, a, it's a perfect facsimile but at a larger scale and so she, she really did use these, these works. She had some books. The Art Forms of Nature uh, was in her collection as well. And everywhere you looked, you kind of see these little, these little touches of 
the hard sciences found within it. And it's really remarkable because she didn't have any formal education in the sciences. She was, you know, of a private school education uh, that ended you know, about the, the age of adulthood. She did attend the Slade uh, part-time as well as a couple other uh, art schools prior to that, but it was really, you know, finishing school, the French school, you know, the French language school. And it's not like she was taking courses in biology or botany or anatomy. Wow, yeah, amazing. And also that you said with the facsimile that uh, she really saw the natural sciences as art, really, that, you know, that's it's such a close, close relationship. What was the contemporary reaction to the hat? Because when I think of 30s Britain, I don't necessarily think of a country culturally that was that yeah, open-minded, shall we say. The the reaction to the hat, well, if, uh, if you do get a chance to watch that British pate video, you can see this, these shocked looks of people on the high street as you know, she's walking around with this very ostentatious hat. And I think as a woman in Britain in the 30s uh, who was very free, she, uh, she had a certain amount of privilege thanks to um, her upbringing and her family uh, that allowed her to kind of issue a lot of uh, different situations uh, you know, she, she didn't have to get married in order to have financial stability. Um, she didn't have to do any kind of work. She was really able to be self-sufficient. And that independence really did permit her to, to live as she saw fit. It was uh, really uh, this, this autonomy, this agency that she had as, as a woman in, in Britain. Was largely in part to uh, to her social standing, and I think that there was, you know, perhaps within these avant-garde and surrealist circles, no one particularly batted an eye. She wasn't, you know, in the majority in surrealism in the early days. Uh, it was more of a boys' club, and uh, she she didn't have the the connection to the group through some kind of uh, lover or partner she really was in there on her own and there may have been perhaps some side eyes um, she discussed openly her affair with paul nash she was married once that didn't last long she she had a partner uh, for quite some time and it was only to please her mother right when the second world war started that uh, she thought maybe do what my mother's been wanting me to do and and marry joseph bard um and it was something that perhaps may have been whispered about a little bit i'd like to know if she was judged because it was almost a, a libertine uh, <laughs> way of life for her sometimes yeah very it's a very complex path to navigate right um okay well well finally this was the the line i found most fascinating you talked about the detachment of the artist right and then you explaining that in some way it seemed that she saw herself as the medium for the sea creatures and i'd never really heard of a you know a piece of art being described like that and i'd love for you to tell me more about that perspective on things and 
what if we if we can speculate would the sea creatures be saying if she was channeling them oh i i did touch on her detachment as like kind of letting the tide this tidal aspect where there was a coming and going of the works yeah i think there is a, a certain amount of uh letting nature take its course it's very subtle because she mentions how you know, there, there were works of art that were either lost or damaged in bombings during World War II, and those she was not able to um, just accept as with detachment. So this, this really was an element of nature itself interfering in, for lack of a better term, a natural way. It was not forced. And so when you know, she had a sculptural head that disappeared in the, in the late 1930s, uh, after an exhibition uh, in Amsterdam, she d did not take it with the same ease as she would have uh, with maybe these elements uh, of the hat changing. These works that uh, were destroyed in the bombing, she was also understandably upset about. So I think there, there's a, it's a collaborative element here uh, with nature and perhaps even with these creatures, you know, kind of choosing when to to make their debut onto the hat that that, that is really nice and it's very charming to think about and I, I looked a bit into in my my research into the sensory elements of these different creatures and how I even talk about how these these creatures act as a sentinel and because you know they've got this elevated perspective uh, they they've got these different sensory modes and so the starfish on there, for example, they, they don't have eyes, of course, uh, but they do have photoreceptors. And so they, they're seeing in a different way. Um, and then uh, when there's the chin strap, it, it makes it look almost like a military helmet. And so we can think about the protective elements of that coral that's on the hat, the, the barbs, <laughs> and, and these different things that, uh, that help protect uh, agar because the, the timing of that chin strap, the photograph is shortly after the end of the, the Second World War. So yeah, thinking about it, I mean, its own abilities acting alongside uh, Agar is also something uh, that's been of great interest to me. Yeah, it's amazing because like you said, there's, there's all these wonderful, playful elements. I, the name itself is brilliant. I was thinking of Alice in Wonderland but also, yeah, really serious kind of relationship with, with the sea. It's a complex piece. Great. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for. So thank you very much and look forward to hearing more. Thank you, Felix. Thank you once again to Christina for that lovely conversation. And I'm already looking forward to my next trip to the beach. And for anyone wondering, the Billy Bragg song that I mentioned is called Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, which, regardless of political inclination, is well worth checking out to see how he updates it as time goes on. As I mentioned before, we have a couple of things coming up, most notably the Techni Congress, where we will have a session on engagement, and we're still inviting anyone who would wish to contribute and be a part of that. Equally, we're looking for people to get involved with the podcast generally as our long-standing co-host, co-producer and general magician Polly Ember is finishing soon. So if you'd like to get involved in any capacity, 
then do please send us an email at technicaster at gmail.com. Coming up soon, we will have another episode on Shakespeare, some archival magic, and then, of course, hopefully we'll see some of you in tune. So for the moment, please take care, enjoy the spring, and I'm off to see some bluebells. Catch you later. <laughs>